0: Welcome to the Mind Medicine Australia podcast where we explore breakthrough innovations in mental illness. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, I'm Tommy Moore, I'm your host. I am a nutritionist, exercise scientist, and passionate mental health advocate. Mind Medicine Australia is a charity that is committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Nearly half of us in Australia are going to experience mental illness in our lifetime. One in five of us are currently battling with a mental health condition. We need greater awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions to ease the hardship and distress of individuals facing mental illness, as well as the burden on our society. Mind Medicine Australia is supporting the development of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy programs within Australia. And as host of this podcast, my role is to speak to psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in this space from all over the world to help shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. As an organization, we are providing educational material and events like this one, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, supporting clinical research. And we are now actually developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies. We have events running all throughout Australia. You can join local chapter groups and form networks to discuss these critical issues we face as individuals and as a society as a whole. Okay, this episode is part one of a two-part series exploring the pharmacology and therapeutic mechanisms of the medicines that we are mostly focusing on. They are the medicines or treatments that have been given breakthrough therapy designation by the US Food and Drug Administration, and they are psilocybin and MDMA. These two episodes will be a point of reference to help understand and give context to the mechanisms by which these psychedelic medicines exert their effect. I will reiterate that I am not a physician, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a neuroscientist, nor am I a psychiatrist. So please take that into consideration. I have a science background and I'm hugely passionate about science and medicine. I speak to neuroscientists and physicians. I read through research papers, listen to podcasts, audiobooks, read books. So that is where I get my information from. Okay. Pharmacology. Pharmacology is the use, effects and modes of drug action. In the case of psilocybin, Where does it take its effect in our body? How do we metabolize it? What receptors does it attach to? And what is the result of that change? Now the scope of psychedelic research is expanding and it's only really in the last couple of decades that we've been able to find out which mechanisms are exerting their effect in our body. I have a science background, so I generally sway to explaining things scientifically As more research and science is permitted to explore the role of psychedelic medicine in mental health treatments, we will better understand their physiological and pharmacological effect, but we don't necessarily need to understand the pharmacology or the science of psychedelic medicine to realise their therapeutic value. Throughout history, almost every culture used psychedelic plants or fungi as part of a a rite of passage or or healing mechanism, and they certainly didn't know what the science was. When we are studying the mind or the brain through material science or empirical evidence, we really need to understand and disclaim our limitations. Studying the brain to understand consciousness and conscious perception and behaviour is very limited to technologies or observation techniques And this doesn't imply the entire story, especially in regards to psychological phenomena. However, we do know that when psilocybin is ingested and activates on our body systems, there are observed changes in brain activity and subsequently changes in blood distribution within different areas of the brain. And this causes alterations in our state of consciousness. Psalocybin is chemically similar to the neurotransmitter serotonin. It has a very similar structure to serotonin. You have most likely heard of, of that, that name, serotonin. It's a neuromodulator. It isn't just a simple excitatory or in, in, inhibitory neurotransmitter. It's not like you get a release of serotonin and you feel happy. Now, it's involved in mood and perception So it may have downstream effects and cause this happiness feeling, but it is a little more complex than that. And we'll get into that. Caffeine, for example, inhibits our perception of fatigue through acting as an antagonist of the adenosine receptor. Adenosine makes us feel tired. So when adenosine can't attach to its receptor because caffeine is using it, we feel less tired or more alert. So that's an example of a simple inhibitory, I guess, mechanism or chemical. Serotonin more tunes neural functions. To put it in context, activating on the serotonergic symptoms by acting on serotonergic receptors can influence things like appetite, cognition, learning, memory, mood, perception, sleep regulation, and even thermoregulation. Okay. Psilocybin, once ingested or otherwise administered, is metabolised or converted into cellosin in the body. Cellosin then acts to stimulate the 5-HT2A receptor, which is the same receptor that serotonin binds to. You can think of it like cellosin mimics the effect of serotonin. Inhibition or agonism of this 5-HT2A receptor is thought to be most directly responsible for the typical psychological alterations in perception, such as visual patterns and imagery, euphoria, a distorted sense of time, synesthesia, which can be described as the merging of two or more senses, emotional lability, which are rapid and powerful changes in emotions, which are often expressed in a way that is greater than the person's emotions and can elicit mystical-type experiences. These changes in perception or our state of consciousness are presumably caused by the psilocin acting on the 5-HT2A receptor, thus causing a downstream response. Okay, in the brain, 5-HT receptors are pretty widespread, but predominantly in cortical regions, such as the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in the coordination of complex behaviours, the cerebral cortex involved in higher functions, hypothalamus involved in appetite regulation, and hippocampus, where learning, memory, and stress are monitored and regulated. Again, I've just give basic functions of these systems, but they're obviously more complex than that. Serotonin 2A receptor agonists, like psilocybin or psilocin. Uh, there's also mescaline or LSD, also called classical psychedelics. Psilocybin falls within the tryptamine class of classical psychedelics. It occurs naturally in up to 100 species of mushrooms belonging to the genus psilocybe, which is a group of mushrooms that contain the psychoactive component psilocybin. It can be also synthesized in a lab. So in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, generally we're using uh, psilocybin that has been synthesized in a lab and given in a capsule form. In healthy humans, psilocybin and or psilocin has a half-life of three hours, meaning that it takes three hours for half of the compound ingested or otherwise administered to be broken down and thus inactive. Psilocin has no established toxicity in humans. It is rapidly broken down into metabolites that are not dangerous to humans and are filtered by the kidney and then secreted in the urine. That isn't to say there aren't any risks. But as far as we can tell, there are no physiological risks. But there are some potential psychological risks like paranoia or anxiety or this fear of bad or or challenging trip. But when psilocybin is used in medically controlled environments, this can be managed or otherwise completely eradicated. And there are now many, many studies that have shown that when psychedelic medicine is administered in a safe and secure environment, guided by trained facilitators with very clear intentions for using the substance, including preparation sessions, then the risk for things to go wrong is actually very, very low. But this bad or or challenging trip is why many people are fearful or quite uncertain about these substances being used in medicine. The word psychedelic comes from psyche, the mind, and delos, meaning clear or visible, Why am I saying this? Because if you're making your entire mind visible, traumatic memories or difficult thoughts may arise and are probable to arise. And this is actually part of the therapy to work through these often rigid, challenging thoughts or behaviors. I'm giving this context because a lot of the therapeutic mechanisms that I'm about to describe are in relation to the brain and and changing the way that we think. Other physiological changes in the body can be increased heart rate, pupil dilation, and increased gastrointestinal motility, which basically means the movement of ingested food through the gut, say the stomach or intestines. Now, when we are talking about perception or mood changes or alterations in cognition, we are generally referring to receptors in the brain. Through advancing technology and neuroimaging, we're able to observe some of these alterations in our neurophysiology. Now, the most notable neurophysiological change is blood shifts away from the default mode network to other regions of the brain. Or should I say it's one of the most notable neurophysiological changes. So while other parts of the brain become more active and more connected, the default mode network, or for short DMN, is temporarily shut down or is bypassed. The DMN is a network of brain regions that mainly includes the medial prefrontal cortex, posterior cingulate cortex, and inferior parietal lobe. Through neuroimaging, we have found that this network is responsible for self-reference. So that is referring to traits and descriptions of oneself, theory of mind, so thinking about the thoughts of others as well as the thoughts of yourself consolidation of information, mental imagery, reflecting on one's emotional state. It's whether self-narrative or this autobiographical self is formed and solidified. This region of the brain is most active when we aren't involved in any external task that needs our attention or focus. So when we aren't really doing anything, we're not cooking, we're not cleaning, we're not socializing, we're simply just being. We could be walking or standing, sitting or lying down, but we aren't focused on anything in particular. And it's this region that, if not monitored or understood really, can cause us so much self-imposed thinking or, or feelings. Now, this brain network is in some ways the seat of the self or the ego. Again, to the extent that we can say that in terms of brain imaging. It's the psychological phenomenology, the feeling, the experience of these alterations in consciousness that is most distinct about these medicines. And it's through these changes of our own self-concept is where new self-perceptions are made. Self-consciousness, that is identifying oneself with the body and mind we inherit and its underlying processes, is a complex phenomenon. I don't want to get too philosophical about the ego or selfhood, but self-consciousness may be best construed as a multidimensional construct. And when there is a loss of self or a dissolving of the ego, this can take several forms. The psychedelic experience tends to dissolve the boundary between self and other. To understand how psychedelics can improve mental health, we need to look at the core of mental illness. Mental illness exists as a rigid negative self-concept or self-narrative. Overactivation of the default mode network or high activity in the DMN has been linked with rumination and negative biases. That isn't to say an overactive DMN is always going to be destructive, but there has been links with an overactive DMN linking with negative biases. Psychedelics can rigid... Or relax rigid thinking through or allowing the space for new and more helpful narratives to be be formed. Again, I will stress the importance of context for which these medicines are used. If they are being used haphazardly, unsafely, unaware of these profound perceptual changes, it's very hard to say that there will be an automatic improvement in mental health. From the evidence that we've seen and forthcoming research, Psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is is an incredibly effective treatment for disorders related to rigid modes of thinking based on habits or negative biases. This includes anxiety, depression, OCD, eating disorders, addictions, and many more, frankly. Psilocybin's main therapeutic mechanisms are, one, the modulation of the default mode network, but also neuroplasticity and functional connectivity. Neuroplasticity or brain plasticity is the ability to grow, reform or reorganize neural networks or connections. It is the ability for the brain and nervous system to change from experience. I want to give a bit of background information about plasticity before we jump ahead and think that psychedelic can simply grow the brain. From birth to about age 25, exposure to a sensory event can cause plasticity. Now, this can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Neural plasticity occurs across the lifespan, however, or should I say it is possible to occur across the lifespan. But after about age 25, it is much harder to activate plasticity, but certainly not impossible. If you want to learn or change your nervous system and engage plasticity, After age 25, you need to be alert or focused. It is a falsehood that everything we do and experience changes our brain past age 25. Brain changes occur when certain neurochemicals, namely acetylcholine, epinephrine, and dopamine are released in ways and in a specific time that allow for neural circuits to be marked for change, and then the change occurs later during sleep. So you need a certain cocktail of chemicals in order for a particular behavior to reshape the way that our brain works. Now, I mentioned we need focus. There are many ways to increase alertness, including having enough restful sleep, hydration, and using periods of the day where you are more alert than others is going to help engage the mechanism of plasticity. Attention can be learned, and it is an essential component for plasticity. Attention requires energy or can feel effortful, especially to begin with, and particularly if you're trying to learn a new concept, cognitive skill, or in the case of mental illness and therapy, thoughts, emotional patterns, and self-concept. Okay, so this effortfulness of attention can prompt the release of epinephrine, which is also a necessary part of engaging plasticity. So this epinephrine is the one that is gives us the feeling of stress. Now, stress can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Now, in the case of learning a new skill or a new concept or changing our behavior, we need epinephrine to feel that effortful stress to then prompt our brain to want to change. Acetylcholine also needs to be released, which is it's a neurotransmitter with multiple functions, but one of those functions is to mark the spot or flag particular parts of the brain which might be a network or of neural connections that are associated with that particular bout of attention. Again, this also means that we are assuming that neural pathways or connections are directly linked to thoughts and by changing or altering their pathways, you can create a perceptual change. Psychedelics, like psilocybin, promote structural and functional neuroplasticity and it's thought that the activation of the 5-HT2A receptor could be responsible for neuroplastic adaptations. But like I've just mentioned, to engage plasticity, especially after age 25, isn't as straightforward as simply taking a psychedelic compound. We shouldn't think of psychedelics as simply growing the brain or making new connections. But it is proposed that they enhance these mechanisms by increasing AMPA-type glutamate receptors, which raise the level of brain-derived neurotropic factors. More research is needed to be more definitive about the precise mechanism of action regarding plasticity and the ability to, for the brain to form new connections or new pathways or networks. But it's certainly interesting to hypothesize and speculate. Now, let's assume that through the therapy, the patient is focusing attention on the parts of their behavior or thoughts to the ones that they are wanting to change and hopefully get this release of epinephrine and acetylcholine. Now, we also need the release of dopamine because dopamine is the one that signals the correct behavior in a lot of ways. Now, when we sleep or engage in something like non-sleep deep rest, could be lying meditation, like a yoga nidra or something like that, the areas with marked acetylcholine can attract growth factors, potentially altering these connections. Interestingly, a deficiency or lack in these neuroplastic mechanisms have been implicated as the pathophysiology of many mental illnesses. So a lack of neuroplasticity implies an inability to change the way we think, perceive or behave. So if we are unable to change these negative biases that is to say we continue on with our mental illness, then we are in many ways stuck in this mode of perception. Now, one more note on plasticity before I move on to the next therapeutic mechanism. Another way of enhancing neuroplasticity, which many of you will be aware of, is repetition. Now, when we're talking about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, the preparation and integration phases of the therapy are absolutely paramount in establishing new modes of thinking or whatever breakthroughs are discovered or realized during the actual session. Psychedelic therapy thus creates a window of opportunity to resettle these rigid thoughts and emotional patterns to potentially give rise to new pathways and connections within the brain via this mechanism, neuroplasticity. This means that it can promote flexible cognition and can have a widespread effect on functional integrity. If more connections are being formed, this can manifest as new ideas or new perspectives. Now, again, I want to reiterate that changes in neural connections happen over time. Nerve cells don't just grow in an hour or a day. It happens over a period of weeks or months, which is why preparation and integration including healthy bouts of restful sleep as part of the psychedelic therapy is critically important. Preparation sessions can happen weeks before the psychedelic session itself and subsequent integration sessions occur multiple times over a set follow-up period, which could be over a few months or even up to a year. Functional connectivity between brain regions refer to the existence of dependencies in their activity What does that mean? Generally, brain connectivity or functional connectivity refers to a pattern of anatomical links, such as neural pathways, between units of the nervous system. Psilocybin can incur changes in functional connectivity. Again, what does that mean? This means that different parts of the brain can communicate or connect with one another when in perhaps a normal waking state might not be possible. Again, what does this all mean? Well, administration of psilocybin or another classical psychedelic compound show increased connectivity between networks that in the normal waking state may not be achieved or at least achieved easily. Through neuroimaging studies of the psychedelic state, this may display more of the brain lighting up than before. Now, this doesn't mean an increase in the number of neural impulses around the brain, but what it means is that there is a greater diversity in parts of the brain that are not usually exaggerated. We've talked a lot about the brain and nervous system here, and this is because I'm talking about the pharmacology and therapeutic mechanism as a whole. Now, I want to put this all into a nice take-home package. Psilocybin is the active constituent of psilocybin mushrooms. When ingested or otherwise administered, it gets broken down into psilocin. It's structurally similar to the neuromodulator serotonin and it acts as an agonist to the 5-HT2A receptors in the brain as well as other parts of the body. Serotonin receptors can influence many biological and neurological processes, including to but not limited to perception, cognition, memory and mood. Psilocybin has three notable therapeutic mechanisms that I've spoken about today. These are modulation of the default mode network, neuroplasticity and functional connectivity. So at the level of the brain, blood is redistributed from the default mode network to other parts of the brain. This results in more parts of the brain communicating with one another and can promote neuroplasticity, thus creating a window for perceptual change. Now, in regards to neuroplasticity, we need a concoction of chemicals, including acetylcholine, which flags the particular connections for later on in sleep to then grow or, or reassemble these networks. Epinephrine is also needed, which acts as this stressor or gives a reason as as to why the brain needs to change because brain especially after age 25 is very rigid it doesn't want to change unless it has to so we need this release of epinephrine in order for that good stress in the case of therapy to to activate uh, neuroplasticity now the other one is dopamine and dopamine can act as many of us think dopamine is as a pleasure chemical and in a way well in many ways it is but In regards to therapy, we need a release of dopamine to signal that a particular change in brain activity or particular thought pattern is a desirable one. So there needs to be, in a way, a flag of dopamine to recognize which therapeutic outcome we're after. This also highlights the context or the importance of context for using these medicines, The context includes preparation for the overall process, being aware of possible states of minds and breakthrough, and to establish clear intentions for using the substance. The psychedelic session itself needs to be used in the right set and setting, set being the patient's mindset, their emotional, cognitive or behavioral adaptations or expectations, should I say, and setting the physical environment and clinician-patient relationship. After the dosage session, integration sessions are held to make sense of the experience and also to encourage long-term perspective change or in a way encourage neuroplasticity because we know to enhance neuroplasticity we need repetition. So these integration sessions are considered essential for optimizing therapeutic outcomes in regards to therapy. With all of that said, We still need larger populations and longer-term clinical research to gain government approval of these medicines. Research is an effective way to promote awareness and cultural acceptance, but as it stands in Australia, these substances are considered no therapeutic use and are not currently considered a liable treatment option. Now, there is a rescheduling process happening at the moment, and depending on when you listen to that, The 22nd of April 2021 is where the interim decision will be made in regards to psilocybin as well as MDMA and and other compounds. But they have decided to extend that and give more time to, to help understand these medicines, I suppose. The TGA has listed psilocybin as a Schedule 9 substance, which means psychiatrists or medical professionals cannot access these medicines easily. So if the interim decision is a positive one, then these medicines will move to a Schedule 8, which means controlled medicines, which will help give access to psychiatrists and physicians these medicines to be used in a therapeutic environment. Research into therapeutic applications has been hindered by the global war on drugs, but many research questions were left unanswered. What we don't know about psychoactive compounds exceeds what we do know. I mean, in regards to science. But one thing is becoming certain. Their effectiveness in treating a wide range of psycho-emotional disorders can no longer be ignored. The future of psychedelic medicine is incredibly promising and it's coming. There is a potential for a widespread application in many public health models. Okay, there you have it. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to support our endeavours, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Spotify and Apple podcasts. You can also share it with a friend, share it on social media, lots of things that you can do. And if you're curious to learn more about psychedelic assisted therapies or related information, or would like to know a little bit more about the services, events and programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, make sure you head to mindmedicineaustralia.org, and you will find heaps of information and links to research and links to more information right there. And finally, before I close this one out, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing their own health problem or disease and patients should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. If you've come this far, thank you very, very much. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes. And if there's something that you're curious about, if you have any questions relating to mind medicine or relating to psychedelics or relating to any of the conversations that I've had previous to this one, feel free to reach out to me. You can send me an email I respond to as many emails as I can. So that is tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. But until then, I will see you here for the next one. So keep well, invest in yourself. So the next episode will be part two of this. So I'm going to explore MDMA, the pharmacology and therapeutic mechanisms of that. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one.